The following conversation is with Dr. James Keane. He is a postdoctoral researcher within youth mental health at the University of Melbourne. This recording was done via Microsoft Teams meeting, but I do hope you enjoy it and I hope you learn something from it. And I thank you always for listening. So I'm sitting here with Dr. James Keane. I am not usually the greatest at inductions, or actually I'm not great at inductions at all. <laughs> I'll let you introduce yourself. Uh, last time I had a psychiatrist on the podcast, I did do an induction, but I I didn't totally mess it up, but I messed it up just a little bit. Um, I called him a psychologist, but he was an academic psychologist. So I'll let you introduce uh, yeah. yourself. Okay. Uh, g'day, how are you doing? My name is Dr. James Keane. Uh, I've completed a PhD at the Swinburne University. Uh, did some postdoctoral work at Monash University and now at the University of Melbourne through Origin and the Centre for Youth Mental Health. Uh, my background is in developmental disorders and youth mental ill health, uh, currently investigating research into bipolar disorder and methods for a multi-dimensional intervention for that, as well as some um, alternative treatments for anxiety and depression. And finally, some what we call first episode psychosis intervention, where we try to um, capture young people where, as they're transitioning into maybe their first episode of psychosis in their life, uh, and then apply some treatments to sort of give them better outcomes. I would like to talk to you today about ADHD because you do have a background in that. I actually looked up a article you had. I will talk about that in a minute, but I would like to talk about um, your recent work. Uh, the ones you just mentioned. Uh, well, we'll start off with ADHD. Could you define ADHD for me? Uh, well, there's you can sort of you can go back in history and look at the different definitions, and they get the further back you go, the scarier they seem to be because it was just an inexplicable uh, inability for young children, or at least younger people, to focus or stay focused on. A task at hand, and this is—I mean, this is all coming after the introduction of school, a school setting where you would have to remain sitting still and take in mountains of information uh, for long periods of time. Uh, and so it was uh, considered a brain disorder. I mean, we'll get to the point where it is, but they just considered it a defect of the brain, which then became a uh, sort of a, a mental health issue, um, which then evolved to attention deficit disorder. And then became attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, the there's some there was you know talk of people. I think there was a the person who had coined ADHD had recanted for some reason on on coming up with the term for whatever reason that was. Uh, and a lot of people say that is a link to the fact that it doesn't exist. But what people should know is that he actually doesn't agree with the term itself uh, because it's existed for as long as we know. Uh, but the actual term attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is quite tricky and it's sort of, it reduces it to very small things that people focus on and it's actually a much larger um, issue. Um, and when you go into the detail of uh, the neuroscience behind it and the socio-behavioral elements, you can kind of see that how it affects all these different kinds of uh, a young person's life as they progress into adulthood. Now, the two causes of ADHD are genetic and there has also been one of environment. I'd like to start up with uh, environment. I read a book, you probably know uh, this individual, uh, Gabba Mate, I hope I'm saying that name correctly. Um, yeah. He talks about how trauma can bring about ADHD, especially in the, uh, in the fetal part of growth. 
when the mum's taking on stress, that baby also takes on stress, but the baby doesn't have an outlet for that stress. So when it's taking it on, it's internalizing it. What is your perception of this reality? Um, I don't really know. I haven't heard much about that. That sounds intriguing. So in that sort of element as being a fetus uh, and during that developmental stage, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on mothers, new mothers these days to not do anything. Basically, you sit still because everything can affect the child and it's linked back to whatever, the, you know, that one day they spent too, too long in the sun, um, which then led to them having ADHD. It's it's quite tricky to sort of pinpoint those things. A lot of the environment versus genetics, is, I mean, it's the ongoing battle. You have to accept that there's an influence from both. Uh, in terms of that specific scenario, it's almost an interplay of both occurring at the same time. So there's an environmental factor impacting the child as it's developing, but that development is sort of at its core where there's cells just multiplying and replicating at a nominal speed. So if there's something in fact impacting it, it's almost impacting the genetics directly. So there's almost a genetic and environmental impact from that outset. Um, whether or not it's true, it's quite tricky to pinpoint. I mean, you've got nine months to recall every single event that's occurred. Uh, and if it was a single event on how much of those events sort of combined together to create one colossal event that has led to an ADHD diagnosis. Uh, I haven't gone back over that kind of uh, research, but it would be quite tricky to sort of say that uh, parental's or mother's stress, maternal stress, I should say, is quite, um, would be a direct link to ADHD, um, which would, I mean, people who are pregnant are kind of stressed anyway, all, pretty much all the time, which would mean a lot more of us would have ADHD than the the five to 10% they currently do. Yeah, you say um, each and every one of us would have ADHD and ADHD is becoming pretty, well, everyone thinks they have it. I mean, you got a lot of these social media users, especially TikTok, all thinking they have ADHD. I personally think we just live in a highly distractible world. I mean, we're on our phones 24-7 and we watch video after video and all these videos are only lasting 10 to 15 seconds. So it's not surprising that our attention span would be a lot shorter than maybe someone of 50 years ago. But could you identify the difference between someone who's just got an extremely short attention span of the of people who say they do today compared to someone who's got ADHD? Yeah. I mean, what I'll do is I'll give you sort of an example and then I'll give you an example from my life. Uh, so I have ADHD. I've I've inattentive ADHD. So I'm not hyperactive. I do. I'm moving, moving around a lot, but that's because I chair in mm-hmm. Um And the inattentive part is basically when you're trying to do a thousand things at once, or at least your brain is. And so the one thing that you should be focusing on isn't quite getting through. Uh, and there could be several different causes for that. You could have sort of this um, auditory disorder that's not quite perceiving what's being said correctly. So you are constantly trying to catch up what the last thing that was said while you sort of um, delineate what the actual purpose of the per- person talking was. Um, but what excuse me, we might find these days is that, you know, the TikTok videos are great, horrible for these kind of examples, but you've got a really short burst 
of entertainment. And for us, for our brain, that's a short burst of dopamine. And that's kind of like a reward. So if you go back, I'll go back to evolutionary stuff at some point. But if you go back um, briefly, you'll just sort of see we would get this kind of entertainment from playing outside. And so the reward that we would get would be kicking a ball around at lunchtime when there was no other phones, there was nothing else to do. And the distractible things were just the things that were not the things that we were supposed to be doing. So you could go outside, you could play with other people, um, you could go home, you could not listen, you could watch TV even prior to that. You know, you'd still get distracted by small things. The current difference in that is that someone could leave. It's more about, so if you think about spending time on your phone, if you imagine it to be more of an addiction than it is a distraction, it's a constant trying to keep up to date with whatever the things that you think might need to be looked at. So you've got these tiny videos, you're like, I, I, you know, I'm having a, a bad day at work, maybe I'll flick through that and I'll get a few bursts of reward for me. So you go and do that for a little while and you might, you know, people always say they do it, they look at it for about five minutes when they look up and spend three hours. Um, and that's kind of the, the addiction side of things. Whereas being distracted by ADHD, one of the core, one of the best examples I'd heard, which I've, I'd, I've lived through a thousand times, is that a guy who's about 35 and he looked at a, it was like a rapper. That was a like a cop lolly and it was sitting on his dashboard in his car. And he got in his car and like, tap, throw that up before I get out because it's going to melt or something. It's going to stick to the dashboard. Naturally, drives and goes somewhere else, gets out of the car, gets back in the car, sees it again. He's like, holy hell, I've got to get rid of that thing. And all he has to do is get out of the car and take it with him. And it's directly within his eyesight. And then he gets out, gets back in, maybe goes and picks up a friend. And then the friend gets in his car and the guy looks down at the dashboard and sees the lolly again and just bursts into tears. Because it's a constant reminder that he cannot fundamentally stop thinking about other things to just remember to pick it up. And take it out and throw it out. And the friend is like, I don't, I don't understand why you've done this wrong. What what why are you so upset about this one lollipop that's lolly or thing that's sitting on your dashboard? And it's like, it's just I cannot, cannot force myself to remember to do it. And it's something that it's because it's there for a moment and then it's gone. And it's much like like it's as if TikTok is a representation of someone living through ADHD. Like you look at one thing and then immediately it's gone thereafter. And I did the exact same thing. The other day I came I came in to get a bicycle pump to pump up a footy. And in the midst of doing that, I cleaned my study and then I took the car to be cleaned. And then I fixed uh, I fixed part of one of the engines in the car because it was annoying me. And then each separate incident led to a new thing that I needed to fix or do. And then when I finished the whole day, like the whole day I'd gone, it was a Saturday, I got back to my study and saw the flat footy sitting on my desk because that was the first thing that I wanted to do. And then at each step where I tried to go and get pump or then I tried to get the car, I was distracted and then I suddenly started doing the next thing. And so it can be quite deteriorating. I mean, you sort of, you get through a whole day and the one thing you were supposed to do, you never got to because you kept getting distracted by other things. Getting to that analogy, to me, this looks something like a spatial awareness uh, deficit or some sort of memory deficit. 
is ADHD a spatial awareness deficit and memory deficit, or is it purely just because they're not paying attention? Uh, a lot of those spatial awareness is tricky because um, I considered my spatial awareness to be quite good uh, in terms of knowing exactly where things are occurring and where stuff is in place and time. I'll forget where I've put things down, that's for sure, but not not more so than anyone else. Um, it is, there is at least one author from about 10 years ago called for ADHD to be, to, to be considered a uh, cognitive issue whereby the brain wasn't correctly identifying what needed to be done <laughs> and so it didn't transfer transport it from the short-term memory to the long-term memory, or at least through the working memory at some point. And so it immediately left short-term and never went anywhere. It was forgotten. And so the problem with that is that there's there's a part of the brain called the default mode network where the mm. brain it, it idles, it just waits. And so ADHD people have a difficulty, depending on how severe it is and depending on if you're inattentive, hyperactive or both, where it can be it can, on a spectrum, it can be much harder to disengage from that DMN. And so the idea is that the default mode network allows us to exist in sort of classrooms and society and everything else, but you need to disengage from it to be able to take in information. Um, and the more difficulty you have in being able to disengage from the default mode network, the more likely you are to not cognitively be in charge of what's happening. So the prefrontal cortex being the core feature of the brain that's in charge of all of our executive functions, our ability to take information in, um, to stay in control of our emotions. Uh, it's one of those parts, it's the most evolved element because it was one of the last things to become about. Uh, and what we find is that a lot of the prefrontal cortex is very different in terms of ADHD versus non-ADHD people. Um, and that can be linked to those symptoms of um, cognitive inability to remember or recall or retain information, uh, and in some cases to be spatially aware of, of what's happening around you. I heard specifically with ADHD, it's the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex that's affected. Is there ways, uh, I don't know the ethicality of it, uh, doing it to a child with some sort of brain stimulation, like transcranial brain stimulation? Is there a way of doing something like this? As I said, the ethicality is a bit funny, doing it to a child. But could this kind of treatment help an individual with ADHD as they're developing? It's, so the tricky part is recognising when that treatment would be needed. So currently I'm, on a, I'm managing a trial at Origin, which is using transcranial magnetic stimulation but for major depressive disorder. Um, and this is usually only brought in when antidepressant medication has shown the effect or not an effect that you would be saying that it's successful. Uh, and so what it's actually doing is, is pumping in these magnetic waves into the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, the, the DLPFC, on the left side more, more often than not, um, and basically stimulating the nerve cells and the neurons there to fire more and to bring about more sort of um, action potentials in that area. And what they would do is usually sort of spark a regeneration of that area that could then benefit from benefit in reducing the symptoms of depression. 
because the DLPFC obviously is quite, it seems small because when you're looking at it, it's the front part of the front part of the front part of the brain. And then on the side, the top and the side, I should say, it's when you're pinpointing uh, a TMS coil, so there is like that, sort of like a, a figure eight coil. When you're pinpointing this spot where it needs to go, you're still hitting somewhere in the field of 10 to 15 billion neurons. And the idea there is that you're trying to at least spark a regeneration of not only um, neurons, but that the like the improvement of symptoms is dependent on whatever's happening there. How to do that to a younger child? I mean, the difficulty there is the study that I'm running is working between 15 and 25 year old. So we're already into the underage adolescent group. Uh, but that's again for major depressive disorder, mainly because that has a higher risk of symptoms getting worse and having a, a greater impact on the young person's life. With ADHD, it's you could bring it into a younger child's life. The problem there is they're still developing. And so it's unknown as to what effect that magnetic stimulation could have on a still really juvenile brain. Um, but I could see, I mean, I could obviously see benefits. I haven't actually done the research in terms of these really uh, juvenile young people, but it would be interesting to see if that would be something that would work. Well, perhaps not juvenile, if you brought the time frame forward, because I know the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed till we're 25, I think um, the research says. So if you brought that time frame forward to let's just say 17, which is I think where the rapidity of the growth really starts to take off, if you sort of shifted it from 17 to 25, could there be more of an eff efficacy rather than the early childhood? So the you've got to when you're trying to think about treatment of something, you've got to think about what uh, the pros and cons of it. Obviously, so the difficulty is that the child has already been through school up until 17 at that point, and most of that time has if they've got severe ADHD that's got side effects of you know complete inattention. They've may, maybe they've been expelled uh, due to the hyperactivity, which has led to maybe um, oppositional defiant disorder and that kind of thing, there might not be, there might be some efficacy in terms of it reducing the symptoms associated with ADHD or at least um, the sort of secondary diagnosis, so depression or anxiety. But the, you know, a lot of the effects have sort of almost, almost set in, but at the same time, it's not going to sort of undo their ability to learn those previous 10 years. Mm. So they can return, obviously, and go back and redo some a lot of schooling. And the tricky part is yeah. school is difficult to focus at the best of times, and it's you know it's hard to introduce something that's so radical to something. So you, I mean, it could work at the age of seventeen to twenty-five, but it's um, at that point the drop-off rate between ADHD percentage in the population, I think it drops off fifty percent. Um, I always try and look at alternative treatments to ADHD, just because. The current medications we have are stimulant medications. Look, I know they are the best treatments we have for them. I personally just feel a, a bit funny on them just because they can be addictive and they do have some side effects. So there was a journal article I was looking at, which, which was one of yours. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Bacopa Miniri. 
what are our understandings of the efficacy of bacopa miniri on ADHD compared to these stimulant drugs we use like Adderall and modafinil and Ritalin and all those type of things? Is, it was actually a friend of mine who I studied with, uh, Chris Neal. He did a comparison review between modafinil and bacopa and it demonstrated quite similar improvements in terms of uh, cognitive abilities. So no one really looks at, no one until I'd sort of done my study had really looked at Bacopa in terms of ADHD, um, at least not comparatively to anything else. So the tricky part with Bacopa is that it takes a, a while, at least three months, to sort of really start to show because then it slowly builds up the, um, the number of catecholamines within the brain. Uh, and then it sort of becomes the norm for the brain to have that amount of metacolomy. And it should, at that point, you should be able to focus a little bit better, maybe improve a bit more attention. It wouldn't do a huge amount to hyperactivity. Um, but the idea that I had throughout that, that time, which is during my PhD, was that the increases in the inattention that were improvements in the inattention, I should say, that had occurred would allow for someone the insight to review, you know, self-reflect on their uh, hyperactivity and then reduce it, therefore. So they'd have sort of this ability to understand what they were doing was not accepted in the situation they were in. And so they might have a better cognitive control of that. So Bacopa, its majority of the research is focused on the latter part of life, reducing cognitive decline in older adults. Uh, there's a few studies in dementia that has shown quite benefit, uh, quite be quite beneficial for improving um, the decline that's often seen in dementia. The tricky part there is you can't take someone off their medication while they're declining quite severely as they do in dementia just to test them on something that's hasn't been demonstrated to be perfect. So a very small study, I think, it was five older people with dementia had Bacopa added to their medication regimen and demonstrated some in, in, significant improvements in terms of their decline. They sort of halted at that point. Um, but the ADHD research is still well behind. I mean, the, the only one of the only ones that has been done is the large-scale um, chronic study that I did in – actually, we published it this year, didn't we? Yeah. There has been some uh... – I don't know if there's any studies on it specifically, so I'll, I'll just call them anecdotal. Fish oils and exercise has been something else that could help with, possibly help with ADHD. Have you seen or read any journal articles that could back this up or push against it? Probably the biggest amount of research in terms of, in terms of alternative medications or medicines, treatments, I should say, is fish oil. So it's one of the biggest fields in ADHD alternative research that you would find. Um, the tricky, I suppose there is a tricky part, but at the same time, it's it's demonstrated that young people with ADHD have far less, far less omega-3s in their system than do people without ADHD. The difficult part is that in the society that we live in, again, we're eating a huge amount of omega-6s, and the omega-6 is pro-inflammatory, omega-3 is anti. And so with omega-6 dominating that, they fight over the same enzymes to transform to the next stage of their sort of evolution. Uh, and the omega-3s simply don't get enough opportunity to do that. So one of the studies that I've previously done prior to that Bacopa study 
was one looking at an anti-inflammatory muscle oil, so the greenlit muscle that's found in New Zealand. Um, and you call that sort of all under the guise of fish oil because it's an omega-3 supplement. Um, the benefit of the specific one, we looked at it in terms of how its inflammatory properties would work best. So what the idea started out as being was that if you go back, if you look at Eskimos, Eskimos have a very low rate of heart disease throughout the culture. And so everyone was wondering why, and then they realized that their diet was made up of 90% just fish and blubber and all this kind of stuff. And when they actually did the research, they found that they had a significant greater amount of omega-3s in their diet than everyone else. Thus began this huge amount of research in omega-3s and heart health and aging, and then ADHD as well. And what you will find is that when it first started, they think they simply started throwing as much omega-3 at the problem as they could. That doesn't work so well. Um, the brain, it has, but there's two main ones. There's EPA and DHA. Uh, the brain is mainly DHA, but the problem is EPA turns into DHA through the process of transformation. And so it became throw as much DHA at it as you can. And that didn't really change too much. That some showed some benefit, but not a huge amount that you would say, let's swap from this to from methylphenidate or Ritalin to omega-3s. And then people said, well, if we give them EH EPA, then it'll transform into DHA in the brain and then it'll fuck. Again, it's about 50-50, sort of a lot of people just saying it's not really an equivalent uh, treatment to replace something like um, pharmacological outcomes. Uh, so my study, instead of being a huge amount of omega-3s, we looked at, it, it did have some omega-3s, but it was mainly its anti-inflammatory actions, which what it would do is go in and block the omega-6 pathway. So what little or the amount of omega-3s that you did have would have that chance to evolve and transform and then flourish within the brain instead of competing against omega-6. And so it worked. Uh, a lot of the research had previously shown similar type stuff. The outcomes we found weren't uh, hugely significant. They were significant uh, across some cognitive parameters and across some uh, attention parameters, but not, again, not enough that you would point to and say, here is, here's the answer. Um, and yeah, I mean, exercise, exercise needs to be the answer to pretty much everything. There are a lot of schools that employ, especially with young kids with ADHD, they employ a system where it's 20 minutes of learning, 20 minutes of exercise. They'll come back and do, I think it's another half an hour or 40 minutes of learning, 20 minutes of exercise, an hour or two hours of learning, 20 minutes of exercise. And that's actually part of the curriculum uh, to get that sort of uh, that, that boost of dopamine that they may not have while learning. And the idea is that if we have enough dopamine, we should be able to focus and stay paying attention. And if not, then we need something to spike it. And exercise or Ritalin will do that. ADHD because you bring it up, is a dopamine and norepinephrine cognitive disorder, correct? Yes. So would this be one of the reasons ADHD people tend to reach out for, let's just say, drugs or alcohol or um, fast food because they're reaching for those dopamine-feeding receptors? Obviously, they don't have enough, so they're looking for more. Would you say that's correct? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that's that's correct across the population, but for ADHD, what the issue is that, and why you find it in so many hyperactive children is that 
there's a need to bring those dopamine levels up somehow. And so the acting out, the running around, the yelling or fighting against an authority figure, that brings it to a level that'll be normal someone else. So uh, the way I used to explain it to people in uh, my studies and the parents would be that if if you've got a normal person with the normal amounts of dopamine and then you've got someone who has ADHD sitting just below with their level of dopamine. So when they take methylphenidate or Ritalin or Adderall, that brings them up to the normal level. But if you gave that normal person the same thing, that takes them too high. But then they get sort of a, a rush of those kind of things, which is why other people do those kind of drugs. There is a high prevalence of adults with ADHD with uh, substance abuse, and that can stem from abusing the methylphenidate or the, the drugs themselves as a younger person. But yeah, it does it does link quite highly to those kind of disorders where you are trying to find that, trying to boost those numbers in the brain. Why do you think it is we developed something like ADHD? If, you, if we go back through the uh, evolutionary chain, the first thought that comes to my mind is possibly being better hunter-gatherers. Maybe a lot of people think that ADHD means where people are constantly inattentive, but I've heard the opposite is true, that when they find something they like, they can be extremely hyper-focused. It's the opposite to where they usually are. Do you think there's some truth to this, that the reason we developed ADHD is because of this hunter-gatherer mentality these individuals had a hyper-focus for hunting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had a friend I used to teach with at Swinburne. He actually came, He actually found an article and sent it to me, which I was fascinated about because I, I hadn't heard this evolutionary one before. Now, there is the hunter-gatherer skills, which is – so if you compare that to settlers, who are people who would be like, here's a nice place, let's sit down and make a house. Uh, what you would find is if you went back through – I think they did some testing – DNA testing, they found that hunter-gatherers were far more well-fed than settlers because they would constantly go out and hunt and eat and then find something new and hunt and eat. And they'd, always, they'd also um, survive because they're constantly on the lookout for novel things, novel threats, new things to come and distract them or try to take them out. And so there's that kind of really early man situation where you'd need these skills to stay alive. But the one that got me was that what they would usually do, the idea was the concept, I suppose it wouldn't actually happen, but I mean, it might've happened, but how they would actually structure it in terms of a, a population, or well, I don't know, but they would have a member of the tribe that would have ADHD or would be the person to inspect a new land or a new spot before everyone else to make sure it was safe. And so the idea would be that that person would be sent in to an area, sort of check it out. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's this, it's a novel thing. So their, their, their health sort of gets put to the side because they've got this novel thing that they can do. So they all, they would go in and check out the new place. If it was safe, they would come back. And if it wasn't, then they may not come back. And so I found that hilarious and fascinating that that might've been one of those, one of those things. Um, and the final evolutionary sort of side of things was that with ADHD, you're constantly trying to do a thousand different things, or you're also trying to pick up skills here and there and everywhere. And that's where they get that old saying, like a jack of all trades. Um, and no one ever, no one ever ends it because the whole, the whole saying is that there's a jack of all trades is a master of none, um, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And so that's that whole saying. So if you're in a situation where you need to do, you need to hunt, you need to gather, you need to protect. You need to run, you need to do all these things. You need to have a separate, a whole group 
of skills rather than just a single one that you're good at. If you're good at building a fire, that's great. But if you can't run away, then you're fine. So it's one of those things where um, you can be hyper-focused and you can be really good at one thing, but at the same time, you need to be good at a lot of things all at once. Yeah, I've heard ADHD individuals are crazy hobbyists. They love everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that's so if we step forward now through evolution beyond hunter-gatherers into a time of today, today's society is very paperwork-driven. Everything has to have an extreme attention aspect to it. Do you think this has become one of the reasons that ADHD individuals have become more depressed because I've heard and read journal articles that ADHD individuals are more susceptible to depression and anxiety. Yeah, um, that is correct. So the, there's a, a number of things that you can look at in terms of what that would be that cause all of the, the cause and effect and how that, what link that goes from. So, I think it was four or five years ago I got diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And that's, you know, that's not, it was kind of unusual for my family and friends because I'm always very funny and laughing and not taking too much seriously and all that. But after a while, that takes a toll because you need to eventually, majority of the time, you need to sit down and be serious and do things and try to work on yourself. And it wasn't until I'd read, ah, that's it, it's called Faster Than Normal. And I can't remember the name of the author, but it's on my phone and I'll find it. Uh, and he went through all of these millions of scenarios and all of them rang a bell in terms of being holding true. And the idea is that there's, you know, you get you get that bored sense about doing work. But if you find ways to boost the that a level of dopamine through exercise or through the correct foods, then you'll be able to get through that meeting and absorb it as well as you can. And then thereafter, as you start to dip again, you can find a way to to either facilitate taking notes or, you know, pop out to do a quick exercise again. And there's a strong link actually in the brain between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the amygdala is in charge of your emotion. Um, And there's a lot of emotion, emotional dysregulation in ADHD. And that could be because of that link. Um, Now, one of the issues is that people, it's, it's not a bi-directional strength. So if we had a strong link for the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, we'd be fine because the prefrontal cortex takes care of us. We're like, sort of puts things in perspective. There's no, 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 it's not too bad. Don't overreact. You'll be just fine. But it's clearly not happening in that direction because there's a lot of people who reach out. I mean, I don't even know if psychologists talk about it these days, but it's called rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD, which is just this overwhelming like a truckload of brick that fall onto you after something menial goes wrong so your supervisor says look this isn't working out really well we need to do better and you fall to pieces and i've experienced that a few times and i couldn't really explain it i just thought i was an emotional person but it, it just wasn't in context it would it doesn't make sense for someone to sort of crash like that uh, and until someone started actually talking about it specifically whether or not it's accepted as a term in modern psychology, I haven't known. I've just sort of kept it in the back in the back of my mind that other people experience it. Someone's given it a name. Whether or not it's true, I don't care. It just means that other people have that same feeling, so it's not just me doing. Um, and it can be, you know, it can be quite tricky to sort of look at your depression and go, well, if I have ADHD, then I don't need to worry about depression because the depression comes second. 
you still need there's still going to be times where you can't sort of deal with what's happening when things become overwhelming and then if you're seeking help for one or the other or both then you sort of need to keep that up to make sure that those things stay in check so that you can sort of better deal with every day the banalities of every day so the amygdala being affected by adhd is this the reason why adhd individuals seem to be affected by odd oppositional defined disorder or cd conduct disorder uh not really um not specifically the amygdala you would have the amygdala is very much your emotions and and that kind of keeping yourself in check. So this primal version of yourself, which exists in the midbrain, can be kept under check by the prefrontal cortex. If it, because of such, uh, it's a stronger link, but it shouldn't be an overwhelming one. If there is a link that is much too strong from from that point of view, um, that would be. You might look at conduct disorder in those cases. Um, oppositional defiant disorder is interesting. Um, it's annoying, really. I mean, having to deal with it because you know that they can't help but not agree with you. And reverse psychology only works once or twice before they figure out that you're trying to get them to do things when you're saying disagreeing. Uh, and they, like I've worked, one kid especially, I just said, oh, okay, don't do it, I'm going to do it. And he goes, no, I'll do it. And then the next time he realised what I'd done. And so he just he refused to listen to whatever I was saying. Very clever, but it can be quite frustrating for both parents and teachers. The action there is... It could be tied to the amygdala. I mean, that that might be tied to sort of memories that have been linked to their dislike of school or dislike of doing chores or something like that. And then it sort of becomes a – that memory becomes a little too strong. So when that tries to occur again, they have that sort of rebuttal immediately. But it's – um yeah, it's quite quite tricky when, when conduct disorder pops up. That's um it's kind of when the red flags start to raise because you need to – you really need to look into that because that's when a high percentage of young people with conduct disorder will go on to be far more destructive rather than simply uh, drinking too much or uh, like experimenting with drugs. They go much harder. They go much faster and um, things start to turn out pretty bad. Being that ADHD, H being hyperactive, how do these individuals go with sleep? So with the pineal gland releasing melatonin, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the suprachiasmatic nucleus uh, setting our circadian rhythms, how do these hyperactive individuals deal with sleep? Uh, I mean, it's, it's not – it can be bad. Like sleep is integral, and it's a core feature of pretty much everything. Um, I worked as a sleep scientist for eight, eight years, uh, very few of the people who were in there were ADHD, mainly related to sleep apnea or night terrors or sort of uh, night parasomnias and that kind of thing. But the the issue, there's not really too many issues in terms of the pineal gland and the suprachiasmatic nucleus, mainly because that's just simply how we evolved. Like light hits the eyes that goes through your pineal gland, shoots down to your suprachiasmatic nucleus and everything wakes up. And that's that's it. There's... There's not too much to say that it'll, that ADHD uh, doesn't get you. I mean, you've got when you've got those sort of things being disrupted, you're talking about sort of a circadian issue. Um, getting to sleep can be tricky, I guess, if you're not able to slow down. Uh, and this can be one of the huge issues with taking pharmaceuticals as well is because methylphenidate boosts up the number of dopamine uh, and then usually what doctors will do is also prescribe a second drug, which then will bring you back down. 
drug. When you get one, you actually get two, and then you've got to balance out these drugs. Um, and the tricky part is getting it right. So if methylphenidate brings you up and you can't get to sleep, it's going to be quite a while until you exit then. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, keeping a sleep schedule could be, is it decent, but I'm not sure how significant, because I haven't experienced myself and I haven't really seen it in too many of the young children I've worked with, um, how, how it affects their sleep too much for getting to sleep. Getting to sleep might be the trouble, but staying asleep should be fine. So it, would it be more so with the hyperactivity, the possible racing thoughts that would keep these individuals awake? Yeah. That and sort of if you come up with that idea, then you jump up and want to do it. So the hyperactivity really is sort of an action type thing. Um, it can sort of slow down and just progress to just thinking in a racing thought idea. But if you have something that is – so if you have reacted poorly to some kind of situation and you're having sort of a, an anxiety about it, then the racing, racing thoughts in a hyperactive person would be quite detrimental to getting to sleep. Um, and that's when, you know, taking on another alternative medicine or an alternative intervention like meditation might work or mindfulness, but also difficult to teach young kids. Yeah, I would like to talk about uh, meditation in just a moment. But um, one thing you brought up about the medication, it does worry me to think that this individual could be on methylphenidate and then a downer, and then they could also be depressed, so they could be on some sort of depression medication. And then all these medications within the system, there has to be some sort of alternative. And that's where I'm getting to uh, meditation. Some sort of focused meditation might be able to bring this person within themselves sort of that closed-eyed, you know, putting in some earplugs, being in a room, just focus on your breathing kind of deal. Um, is there much research done on focused meditation with ADHD? Uh, it is. Not a, uh, I don't have a huge recollection of reading about it. So it's different ways that you can sort of focus on it. I mean, you can do the meditation which is to sort of sit there and um, have someone guide you through a scenario, which would be more beneficial because leaving it to oneself, you know, you'll have those racing thoughts. You'll just simply get distracted and lose focus. A lot of it is uh, training and being able to do it on a repeated basis. So you're treating it exactly like you were taking medication. If you did it at the exact same time every morning, you might be able to get some kind of control over it and you'll be able to reach down into that, need every time you need it and and adjust your sort of your hyperactivity and you slow your, your, your thoughts down that way it's i wouldn't know yeah i don't know enough about it i mean in terms of the stimulant medication yes it can it'll boost all that stuff up and then you'll need to take something that may bring it down that does depend on if you're taking a long acting or a short acting stimulant there are non-stimulants uh so atomoxetine is the one that a lot of the young people used to take and instead of uh, leading to the flourishing of noradrenaline and dopamine, what it does is it sort of affects the noradrenaline, norepinephrine transporter, and it enables it's it's it doesn't degrade it, but it's it doesn't stimulate it. It just sort of means that there's a slow buildup of more of and, a, and, a, and it makes more available these these neurotransmitters in the brain. So it doesn't bring more of them about. It just and it's much slower to work, so it is quite tricky for it to actually kick in. Um, it acts more like sort of an antidepressant, like an SSRI, because it's called an SNRI, selective uh, noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, and it works over a period of time. 
and you have to give it time for that to work and there's less of a crash for that because it's slowly built up. Not as effective in terms of short-term goals, but uh, in that kind of situation, it does work better. Yeah. Right, I jumped around between meditation and non, non-stimulants. That If a stimulant is so effective within ADHD, can caffeine sit somewhere in the mix? It does. Uh, they do recommend sort of some elements of it. It can't for, again, so you've got to think of just needing to get the baseline normal level of dopamine dopaminergic functioning. So having coffee will boost the brain in some way, but it won't necessarily have the same effect on someone with ADHD than maybe someone else who doesn't. So I'll easily have a coffee and go to sleep. At the moment, coffee wakes me up because it's a routine and it's in the morning. So as far as I know, that's that's mainly the reason I have it and the reason it gets me going is because that's part of my morning routine. It wouldn't have too much of an effect of getting the brain working too well. There are studies to look at caffeine capsules that have um, been used in ADHD. I don't think they've explored it a huge amount. I mean, caffeine is explored in everything, and you'll find 50% is bad, 50% is good. And all around, we just bought a whole bunch of caffeine. So for, it'll end up back where we started. Same thing with energy drinks. It'll, I mean, that kind of stuff will just crash you anyway, and that will crash everyone because it's a huge amount of sugar. Yeah, it simply wouldn't be a replacement type thing in terms of excitability. Uh, we'll move forward from ADHD. I could talk about it all day, but I will move forward a little bit. Yeah. Uh, getting to your recent work in bipolar disorder and uh, psychosis and stuff like that, one thing that I would like to bring up with you, um, I've spoken a bit about this a fair few times in my podcast. I'm not sure if you've looked too much into it. I'll ask you anyway, just in case. Uh, psychedelics. What is your stance on psychedelics? I only ask because you brought up psychosis and stuff. And psychedelics are pretty much, especially when you get into things like uh, magic mushrooms and DMT, LSD, um, not so much MDMA. I mean, yes, MDMA is a psychedelic, but it's not a visual psychedelic. But yes, what is your stance on psychedelics in medical use in terms of depression and anxiety and PTSD and all these sort of things? Obviously, they can't be used in schizophrenia, but there has been some evidence of of it being used for these other disorders. There's, uh, well, surprisingly, my mother, who was a palliative care nurse for about, I want to say, 35 years. Um, and if she hears this, I apologize if it was more or less than that, but while she was there, they were there was a team researching microdosing of LSD uh, with some patients. And a lot of the time, what uh, the research is aiming to look at is in PTSD is because there's this trauma plays a huge part in a lot of people's lives that leads to a road of psychosis or um, depression or anxiety, and at least to endless medications and different trials and this. And one of the benefits of psychedelics is that when it's taken in a setting where they sort of, they can cater for your weight and your age and your height and all that kind of stuff, they can give you an amount which allows you this perspective that no other medication really does. And it can provide you with an insight that you may not have had before. And it's this, people have described it as an overwhelming understanding of something that they just never perceived that way before. They looked to sort of standing outside themselves and seeing who this personality 
is and how it existed and currently exists and what it was like before this traumatic event and whatever led to where they are now. Mm-hmm. And it it does sound all sunshine and rainbows in terms of how they can get it done. And I don't see why we don't go further down that line. It may people always point to the risk of abuse, but the the issue there, the, there's a risk of abuse of everything. And so the problem with people with these who have suffered these kind of traumatic experiences probably are self-medicating with um, alcohol or other drugs anyway. If there's a way that they can get a, a view of life or an introspection that they've never had before that might give them the perspective they need, then it's obviously worth trying. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who are doing microdosing, which sort of sort of um, goes just below that sort of really super illegal radar because you're only taking tiny amounts and it's in coffee and, I mean, the cannabidiol stuff has gone crazy. People are taking um, CBD oil with everything, um, which has its own pros and cons. I mean, psychedelics, I think, is a really interesting field that people should. There's a huge amount of shows on, like, Netflix and stuff now that people are doing it and, yeah. Yeah, I myself, I've had experience with CBD oil. I um, I went to uh, Hawaii back in, I think it might have been April or May, and I, I bought some CBD oil just because I'm myself a, a guinea pig. I'm a self-trialing guinea pig. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to guinea pig anyone, guinea pig yourself. I mean, that's the only yeah. person who can do it ethically. <laughs> exactly. So, I, I did it to myself. I did ask the person who was selling it to me. This was sold in a shop, by the way, in Hawaii. It's illegal to buy CBD oil. Uh, illegal, sorry. So during the purchase, they told me how much I should take. And it was just like a little, one of those little things that you squeeze, just that little vial. And they said, you know, just to start off yeah. with, just, just take half of that. So I did take half of that. Look, I took it for, I took it for about four months straight. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I took it every night. Because I thought to myself, if I really want to see the true effects of this and to see if it's just placebo, I'm going to put a really long trial on it and then I'm going to just come off it like just cold turkey and then see what kind of happens after that. I'm not on it today, FYI. But basically, during those four months, now in terms of sleep, because I was taking it before bed, I did feel like it was giving me a better sleep. But if I can quote a now, I'm going to quote it extremely roughly. Uh, there's a book by uh, Matthew Walker, uh, While We Sleep, really good book. He talks about marijuana use. Now, I'm pretty sure he said with marijuana use, we don't get enough. It's either non-REM sleep or REM sleep. It's one of the two. It does relax us, but it doesn't actually put us in a deeper sleep than we than it would naturally. So the feeling of getting a better sleep it's just, it's kind of like those people that say, you know, I got six hours sleep, I feel fine, but it's not actually true. Over the long run, you will start to feel it. And I'll have to admit that, yeah, over the long run, I did start to feel it a little bit, but one area it did help me because I do have lower back issues. That's how I could relate with you during the email, what I was saying. Um, oh, yeah. it, it did actually help me a lot. I've L5, S1 and L3 issue. That's, I, was, I was young and dumb once, <laughs> but it helped me a lot with the pain that I was getting. I'll take it before bed for about 20 minutes and it was incredible for the pain. Now, as soon as I came off a few days later, I started feeling that pain straight away. Now, the issue was that the pain that I felt after getting off it was worse than it was 
before I even got on. Now, I know we have CBD receptors within us, and we so we produce really our own CBD. So I, my theory was I just kind of flooded myself with uh, this outside CBD, probably too much, and now my CD receptors were just basically being kicked around like they're not used to, and then getting off it, that little bit of CBD that they could produce was probably now not enough. That that's that's just my theory. Um, that's my self experience with uh, CBD oil. I've never had any experiences with uh, psychedelics. I do know people that have. They've told me that they have this. It's like a euphoric uh, experience. So specifically psilocybin. I've, I know someone who's had psilocybin, and you know they've been in the woods, and they tell me that. The experience they had on psilocybin itself, so fundamental for their mental health, because at the time they were going through issues, that the, the depression they had was reversed. But I'm not sure if my thinking is, is the experience necessary for psilocybin to work or is there something else within psilocybin that works, that doesn't have to necessarily be the experience? That's a good question. I did, when I was, back when I was teaching, I had this class of, um, it was, it was neuropsychopharmacology. Um, but the problem with that one was I, I brought speakers in. And so I had someone come in and talk about psilocybin. I had one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Sarah Katzlove, she came in and talked about CBD oil. Um, the differences between that and THC and how the CBD receptors sort of act in this regenerative uh, sort of cyclical way. So, you you know, yeah, you may have been having more of a constant run of CBD. So when you stopped and that run stopped and the other receptors kicked up and you may have felt more pain. Um, but in terms of the actions of psilocybin, it does seem to be that the accounts are the experience. Like a lot of people don't seem to – you can talk about the, the neuroscience of it, but a, a lot of people talk about the account of what happened, what that experience was, what occurred, and what this dream state brought about. Um, and I don't understand how that worked. I mean, if there's a, I'm not sure you could create the same outcomes without that experience. It seems to be that that's the core thing that people take away. Um, and I've had, I've got colleagues who do, who have done MDMA testing um, and ketamine testing. Um, strangely, those studies fill up really quickly. So you can sort of you can sort of see that people are interested in those sort of things. I mean, we don't they don't get ketamine and then get sent off to a rave, which is probably what they're thinking. But you just have to sit there for six hours while someone stares at you while you take it a, a small amount. Um, but it's one of those things where you just sort of all we could do is identify what happens before, during, and after on every physical and mental level uh, and then try and determine what exactly is happening and then sort of try and deduce it in a way that we can harness it for these kind of disorders to sort of look at it and go, would this be beneficial? Would MDMA be beneficial in, in this regard? If someone's not replying, responding to this and this and this, before we go to, you know, electroconvulsive therapy, would this be something that would benefit them? And, I mean, people who get those kind of experiences with psilocybin, if it doesn't happen, Surely it doesn't happen to everyone, but if they if it has, then 
those people are, you know, insanely lucky. I mean, to find something that just snaps them, essentially snaps them out of it, would be amazing. And so it's kind of, it's interesting that, and it's good to hear those kind of stories. It's just, it still has to be anecdotal until we find a reason why. Yeah, um, these self-reported stories. Um, I have very mixed feelings on recreational use. Look, I think people should be able to do what they want to do as long as it's not hurting anyone else. But at the same time, the problem with recreational use is these individuals are kind of doing it just kind of a guessing work of how much they should take. And to me, that's where the trouble kind of sets in. So there are different doses uh, when it comes to psilocybin. There's this dose called the heroic dose, um, which is basically uh, when you start taking, if it's, I'm pretty sure it's measured in grams, where if you take, I think it's about five grams, it's, you, you basically see aliens, uh, you know, you, 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 you have this really mystical journey. Uh, I don't know if you see aliens, I just came off the top of my head, but people claim they have this very mystical journey. Um, you got the lower doses uh, where I think it's 0.5 to a gram where all it really does is it just kind of enhances spa uh, spatial awareness features. So if you're in the forest, you know, things might be greener, things might be browner, you know, just those, those type of things. This you got other drugs like DMT, but that's a totally different animal. With with psilocybin, can you ever see us using it medically in Australia? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the problem is we have to get the research done to make sure that it's safe. Once you do that, then you can move on from there. The issue with doing that is you have to start incrementally and you slowly build up the amount that people can take to justify that it's safe and then so on and so forth. So it's still... And the amount of red tape that you have to get through, which is, I mean, a lot of my experience in the past 13, 12, 13 years has been how to navigate the ethics and the governance side of research. Uh, and there's ways, I've always said there's, you could do anything research as long as you write it down. I mean, if you do something wrong and you write it down, you'll still get in trouble, but there'll be evidence of you having written it down. So it's fine. But what you sort of need to do is just follow the steps that everyone has in front of them try and get to the point where you say, right, now we can test it. If it shows absolutely nothing, that's fine. What you want to do is then repeat it with a higher dose and you slowly incrementally move it up and up and up. They did the same with omega-3s. I think children with conduct disorder, I think they were taking the recommended is like 12 capsules, 12 fish oil capsules, because they need a huge amount to counteract the, the deficit of omega-3s they have. Again, that's not the only thing that's at play, but that's the recommended dosage for them, whereas ADHD is about four or five. And so when you're talking about psilocybin, it could be just that you start off with these microdosing stages and you build up to where you see the, the minimal efficacy. And then you say, well, it's helpful here and it's helpful here. And now we've got um, benefits to anxiety and depression. I'd like to talk about bipolar disorder. Can you describe to me or give me a description of what bipolar disorder actually is? Uh, so what we see in terms of bipolar is these ebbs and flows up and down between uh, sort of these manic episodes and these depressive episodes. So extremes of what we would feel normally. So you feel happy 
that's normal. You feel sad, that's normal. But if you go to the extreme end of that, that's sort of where bipolar people end up. And so during manic phases, it can be quite detrimental. I mean, they feel great and they can get, they say they can get a lot done. Uh, and there's famous celebrities, they say they don't, they don't like to harness, or they do like to harness that manic, that manic episode, but it can be quite detrimental because if they go out of their way to do things that they think are a great idea. I'll give you an example. One guy who was a hairdresser, he owned a salon, um, and he went, during a manic episode, he knew he could fit in more chairs in his salon. So he started organising it, but then a manic episode, and he's like, this is too slow. So he started taking to his own for the salon with a stent hammer, sort of breaking chairs down, breaking the mirrors, because he's like, no, no, we're going to move this on the side. It's going to be great in cost how much damage to his business and then eventually after how many hours or days or week uh, that manic episode lasted he eventually stopped and went down um it doesn't usually go from one extreme to the other but in this case i think he sort of hit rock bottom thereafter and if you go into that major depressive episode and you have time to reflect on what's just happened it's probably why bipolar disorder is probably one of the why one of the highest has one of the highest suicide rates out of any mental health disorder. So that was one of those things, you, you know, you've done all this crazy things that you think was a great idea, then you hit the depressive phase and then you see what you've done and, you, can, you know, you have to listen to your family members explaining all these different things that you, you've, um, you've gone about doing. And it can be quite detrimental the longer you sort of go on without treatment. So when we're young, we might go in through hyper, sort of a, a low manic phase to a, a high manic phase to a low depressive and um, major depressive episode, but there'll be long long gaps between these sort of ebbs and flows. And so there'll be a huge gap between that and the next one. And then as you get older, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter until it may become overwhelming that you're sort of fluctuating between these two extremes. So at, uh, at Origin and the University of Melbourne, the idea is that we try to look at it as soon as they sort of hit this first stage where the, a doctor has referred them to a psychiatrist or psychologist they do an assessment and realise that, yes, this person may have bipolar and this might be their first episode, so let's educate them on what to do. That's mainly the first step. You stand there and you go through with them what it means to have bipolar, what these different feelings means. We have um, a whole program where it just educates called psychoeducation. We provide information that is in context with what young people with bipolar have had before and so they can sort of relate to that. Uh, information and so they take that away and then from that point they have a program of, of getting an intervention in place and recognizing the feelings of the symptoms when they come on. Two questions coming off that. The first is um, what's going on within the brain that's causing these massive swings from uh, hypermania to extreme depression and what is the age difference that's causing these long gaps to shorter gaps? Oops. I, I probably couldn't really go into the neuroscience of um, the bipolar. Mainly my, my role here is to make sure that the project that we're doing um, is not the, what I'm actually running is not actually the neuroscience aspect of it. It's just the project uh, facilitation to make sure that it's running well. We get people in to go through the journey and then join and then have psychiatrists, psychologists, and they do they call it a program that, that is usually set out and we've sort of designed up an individualised version of that called Blend. And we don't have uh, sort of a neuroscientific investigation arm. And so my knowledge would only be yeah, very superficial in terms of bipolar. But there is a lot of uh, interesting 
quite difficult to counteract bipolar. I mean, when you think someone's having a depressive episode, you can counteract it with antidepressants. But then you've got people who go into their manic episodes and you've got things like lithium and other drugs which may sort of stop them from being, sort of keep them on a more even keel. But even then, they're still jumping from one extreme to the other. So quite tricky for manic, especially when it gets more and more out of, uh, um, not out of control, but less, um, they're less able to understand what they're experiencing at a given time and sort of they're less communicative with their, their treating team. Uh, so, yeah, there's not really huge amounts I can sort of comment on in terms of the neuroscience there. Um, and as we get older, I mean, the idea is relatively new that we sort of need to get in early with bipolar. And the theory is that should we be able to do that, then we should be able to keep these lengths between these episodes at, at bay, or at least keep them longer rather than getting shorter. And um, it's not being able to recognise or educating themselves or everyone and family members especially but people around them on what when these specific things are occurring so it's quite tricky to make sure that we get hold of who the young person is it could be very individual type of symptoms that they uh, exhibit and so as they if you are able to get in early and show them and recognize and show them what these symptoms are then they can recognize them as they go forward um and the shortened time frame i i would Posture that it would simply be that you've gone that whole time without recognizing when something's about to occur. Um, and you have just have shorter time frames, and life gets trickier, so you can easily more switch between those two. And I'm mainly rambling at the moment, but it's it gets yeah, as you sort of move along, it gets a bit harder to manage your your emotions and regular regulatory changes. Um are there any, uh, so we spoke about natural remedies for ADHD. Are you aware of any natural remedies for uh, bipolar disorder? I only ask because I'm guessing that there are side effects to bipolar medication. Um, I'm not aware what they are. Uh, possibly you could uh, discuss that with me. Um, but are there any natural things for bipolar disorder? It's, I mean, bipolar, it's recently taken on its own sort of chapter. In, in mental health, so it's no longer part of sort of this mood. I mean, it's still under mood, but um, it's already sort of separate entity, and it's one of those tricky things to, to treat because it's moving back and forth all the time. One of the more natural ones, I guess, is is when when you start to get if the symptoms keep progressing and get worse, you end up on the verge of psychosis, or at least ultra high risk of it, and then you'll sort of border into psychosis and. One of the things that we found and we're currently testing as well is to look at what's called N-acetylcysteine or NAC, NAC, uh, and its ability to reduce those symptoms of psychosis um, and associated symptoms uh, of those experiencing it. And so that is one, I guess it's an alternative. You do have to synthesize it, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's very much an alternative medicine. It's very easily available, um, but it's quite useful. A lot of medical units use it in cases of it's um, paracetamol overdose because it sort of transforms what the what's delivered to to get rid of all of that stuff without them sort of suffering any ill effects. So uh, there's been previous findings in, I believe it was Andrea Pelea in, uh, in Lausanne in Switzerland, and then that moved across to Michael Burke and his team at Beacon, and we are currently sort of doing a fairly large-scale early psychosis study here to see if that could help. But in terms of other ones, I'm, I haven't really heard too much about uh, alternatives to bipolar. 
Is there a link between bipolar disorder and ADHD? I only ask because from what I'm aware of bipolar disorder, it is also a dopaminergic disorder. Is there more of a chance of someone with bipolar disorder having ADHD or vice versa? Huge correlation between those two. Easily be misdiagnosed as one or the other. Usually you'd probably go for ADHD in youth because it being, I mean, the seriousness of it doesn't become evident until like a major depressive episode hits because if you look at the manic side, you might just see hyperactivity. Um, but when a major depressive episode hits, you probably wouldn't associate that too much with ADHD, especially in young children. But there is a lot, a big crossover, especially the dopaminergic deficits in the prefrontal cortex, which is where a lot of these things sort of seem to go awry. And a lot of that can be sort of correlated. You can sort of look at the same thing and maybe think that treating it would be similar. But only in sort of certain instances, maybe treating hyperactivity and a manic episode might be similar, whereas treating inattention uh, and depression isn't going to be the same because you'll be looking at two different parameters of serotonin and you'll still be looking at boosting dopamine as well. But there is a lot of crossover in terms of diagnosis and symptomatology. Is bipolar disorder more something an individual is born with or are there other causations through life that can bring on bipolar disorder? As we discussed, um, ADHD that I am aware of can possibly be brought on by trauma and uh, external situations that a younger individual is put in. Is this also true with bipolar disorder or is it more so genetic and what someone is born with? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination. So if you have to, what you usually do is if you come in for an assessment, they'll check out who you, what your family history might be like. So if your parents, they'll go through your immediate family first, then extended family, and then so on and so forth. So if they go to parents and one has a history of depression or the, and the other one has a history of bipolar, then you'll have a heightened chance of some environmental impact leading to the diagnosis of bipolar. So you might have the predisposition to have it. You may not... Uh, suffer the full effects of it until something occurs in your life that they could bring it to the, the surface. If both parents have bipolar, then it's more than likely that you will suffer at least some of the symptoms. And again, it might be some kind of traumatic or some other impact that will influence it. You're never going to 100% guarantee that you have bipolar. I mean, sibling studies and twin studies show that you're not going to have that sort of immediate def defining, uh, predefining thing if your parents have it. But I mean, the further you go out, so grandparents and that kind of thing, it's just about percentages. So if grandparents had it but your parents didn't, then you'll sort of go down to you like 25 30%. And then it's, it's sort of like you have this threshold to reach and genetics only takes up so much. And so in order to reach that threshold, something has to occur uh, in some kind of traumatic fashion to lead to it coming to the surface and to that sort of disparity or dysfunction of the prefrontal cortex and it can be quite difficult for some people if they have only have a small link to the genetics and they have a significant traumatic experience, then it's good to be But um, unfortunately, that thing, those kind of things can happen. So an individual who, let's just say, is yeah. under extreme depression, is on the extreme depression side, they have more of an opening to develop bipolar disorder? Is that what you're kind of alluding to? Kind of. I mean, you're looking at sort of the mood area and if... If someone, if there's depression in the family, you're more likely to sort of gain that um, that link to depression. In terms of bipolar, I mean, you'd have to look at the specific genetic studies behind it, which I don't have off the top of my head. Um, and 
if the link isn't there, if the link is purely sort of sitting on that compression side, you may just be uh, susceptible to that. But if, if there's a whole new dysregulation element that tracks back a bit further in your family history, then you may be more susceptible to eventually developing it. We've spoke about uh, psychedelic use. Are there psychedelics in general or any drug abuse in terms of alcohol or just any other drugs such as, I don't know, marijuana or cocaine or anything like that, can these things bring on an underlying bipolar reaction? If so, if an individual doesn't have bipolar already, can an underlying bipolar disorder, just say this individual doesn't know that they have it, but it is mm -hmm. within their system, can these kind of drugs influence it to emerge? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's... If you, if in the first place you might have the predisposition to rely on these kind of drugs, and so if you don't know you've got it, your your sort of tendency to be drawn towards them may be one of your first indicators that it's you're susceptible to bipolar or that there's a link to it in your family history. And so when you're drawn to those things and you become consumed by them and you start to abuse those different kinds of drugs, depending on the severity of it, it can bring about either an early it depends on how long you've been abusing it for, but if that comes along, I mean, it can bring about the symptoms to more like a stronger effect. You've still got people who go out and drink and they feel great and then they'll come back and then they'll wake up and then because they're depressed, they're 10 times worse the next day. And that could just be depression, but if they've got a constant abuse of that, then they can bring it to the surface and, and lead to um, a diagnosis of bipolar. These manic disorders, are they correlated with hallucinogenic disorders? Do people with bipolar disorder tend to hallucinate auditory or visual signals? Uh, they can, yeah. Uh, it sort of depends on when you get into that sort of area. You, I mean, it's getting to the sort of the scary point when you've got hallucinogenic, uh, hallucinogenic hallucinations, I should say, um, occurring. Although they're not uncommon, it can lead to sort of that more severe sort of, when you're sort of bordering on the psychosis area. And that's when sort of the brain has, it's begun to sort of disengage with reality. And those hallucinogenic drugs sort of allow you to do that temporarily, but you can see sort of a link between when you start to experience these things that the disconnect between real life and uh, what's going on is quite similar to those who report experiences from psychedelics and those kind of drugs. With bipolar disorder, is it a spectrum disorder, kind of like uh, autism or ADHD? Are there different variants? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you'll see people respond. It's, sort of, it's very tricky to pinpoint because there's so many ways that, that an individual can experience it and based on their support system and what drugs work and don't work, then it can be quite different based on a case-by-case -case basis. So someone may experience it early and get treatment early and so their, their projection for the rest of their life is you know, stabilised because they've got a good hold of education and the knowledge of it. Um, but if someone's predisposed to it and is unaware of it and doesn't go to seek help for it, then that could be, that'll obviously go to the more sort of severe end that'll lead to more uh, links to psychosis and um, detriments. And I mean, if you look at it on that sort of spectrum, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the symptoms can get, will vary across the difficulty with bipolar is because there's so many that can be varied. And you've got this sort of, you may have low manic phases, but really depressive phases or high manic phases, but only sort of sub-threshold depressive phases. So it's um, it's quite a complex little system. 
What fascinates me about bipolar disorder and and any uh, cognitive disorder really is the evolutionary state of it. Um, We spoke about how ADHD and evolution and how uh, or why we developed it as some sort of advantage. I'm wondering, what do you think the advantage could have been with bipolar disorder? If we go back to our archaic times of just say our hunter-gatherers, what could have been a useful trait in bipolar disorder, do you think? Oh, that's tricky. Yeah, I haven't really. I mean, you, you should look at it similarly to ADHD in that the manic phase could promote the novelty of finding you know, new places to venture to, uh, seeking out or being wary of sort of the dangers that might be around you. So people who are wary of you know, these days, modern age, modern age where they you know, have a feeling that someone's following them or that they're, you know, someone's tapping the phone, that kind of thing. They're having these sort of these fears that could have been experienced in come together or stages where they sort of were more wary of predators that were around. But you can sort of see the detriment of having the depressive phase because you'd have to, they were able to seek out something and then keep people safe and then fell into a depressive phase. I'm not sure how helpful someone in that phase would be other than to hide and to sort of stay close and away from everything else. But yeah, no, it's an interesting question. Depression seems to be one of those things that's correlated with almost every cognitive disease you could think of, whether it's bipolar disorder or ADHD or autism. With depression, are there, so for example, if we took something like ADHD, if we took something like bipolar disorder or autism, is depression different across the range of those cognitive disorders? And is depression more susceptible to certain cognitive disorders than others? It can be tricky to look at it from that perspective. I mean, you can look at depression as sort of a secondary disorder when you've got a primary diagnosis of autism or ADHD or bipolar. Um, I mean, depression makes up a huge component of bipolar, but you could have just the sort of the manic rather than the sort of the sub and sort of the, the smaller amounts of depression. But it does take on... Yeah, as it's you know a, a big part of a lot of these disorders, it can be a reaction to a lot of the issues that you experience from day to day life. It could be the inability to get work done due to ADHD or the the, the fallouts and the manic phase with family and friends. And then depression on its own could simply be your ability to manage your own sort of anxieties and and work balance work life balance and family issues and that kind of thing. So you've got a lot of different parameters that will sort of be play in terms of leading to the feelings of depression. And there's a lot of symptoms that sort of subsume depression and what that can lead to. So the inability to sort of stay calm in normal situations, social anxiety in terms of going to work and speaking to people or, or whatnot. But there's a, yeah, I mean, there's a whole array of different things which could lead to it. I mean, anxiety and depression plagues the whole population. So it's one of those things that... Um, has different origins and take you on different journeys. Something that uh, makes me a little bit upset, specifically in uh, men, this is true, that it's believed that when a man is feeling, let's just say, down, the stigma is, look, not so much today, but it still does play on today just because there's still that older generation mentality of, you know, eat a cup of concrete, harden up, move on. You know, this has been the mentality for men for a very, very long time. And there are a lot of men out there who are afraid to speak up because they don't want to seem less of a man. 
what would your advice be for people listening to this, specifically uh, men who are listening to this, who are going through some sort of, let's just say, downstream phase and they don't want to speak up because they don't want to feel or be seen as any less of a man or an individual? Fuck everyone else. Just, you know, fuck them. Doesn't matter. That's the kind of thing. I mean, it's the, the difficulty is we, we convince ourselves that we're not impressioned by other people, that we don't look up or we take bits of other people's personalities and we're kind of like that person, but we're not like that person because of these reasons. But, I mean, we're all very, very different and we like to have our friends because we have similarities. But the similarity is that we all go through these ebbs and flows and that the, the depression is a huge part of lifestyle. I mean, there's no point... There's no way that you're staying at the top nonstop all the time. The Instagram personality doesn't exist. It's just snapshots of a person having good lighting, and that's pretty much it. And then the rest of the day, they, they might be sitting in tracky pants and, and whatever it is. And being surrounded by sort of, I mean, it's not bad to be surrounded by other men to sort of celebrate just being yourselves and being good people. I feel like I've been put into a bubble in terms of where we are in academia and where we spend a lot of time making sure that we express those things. And I talk to my team all the time to make sure they're okay. And if they've got therapy appointments, they just say, look, I've got a you know, earlier the therapy in next week. No worries, that's all good. But I mean, that's that bubble when I go outside and I realize that not everyone's like this. It's hard to sort of communicate across to that because you know, it's it's a learn, it's still a learned skill. You sort of have to sort of sit down and jump step outside just briefly outside of that comfort zone and just sort of go look you know, things have been really crap lately i haven't enjoyed this we're not speaking properly at home i'm trying to do these things better and one of the, the key things is just that communication if not if if you're not the one communicating at least go to a place where others are so you can see that it exists and you can experience that other people are going through it as well so online forums small meetup groups that kind of thing there's huge, there's lots of programs that are around just for men just to, to not, just to sit and chat and to go through whatever it is. And people from every walk of life turns up to those sort of things and goes through what's happening. I mean, I used to facilitate a group called the Anxiety Disorders Association in Victoria. And well, I would just go into it's like a bus, empty basketball court and you would go and people would chat. And you would, everyone in that room, you could sort of see they're all from various walks of life and it's just they're all experiencing the same thing. Just having someone to listen to, if you just want to sit there and not say a word, it, it gives you that feeling of, of being not alone, but it sort of provides you with sort of a boost. And so I've found that going out and sort of finding these forums and expressing what, how I'm feeling as well helps, but then also reading other people's stories. And if you can write to them, then comment and write back and say, I'm doing the same thing. I've had the same experience. And previously I've done this before. And one of my, I think it was my favourite, um, quote from the West Wing, which is showing my age a bit, but it was it was an episode where you know Josh is this big character guy and Leo is sort of going to this two characters in a room, and one of them's coming out from a big meeting. He's like, "What are you doing here?" And it's like, "Let me tell you a story." And a guy falls down a hole, and a priest walks past, and the guy says, "Priest, so you know, can you help me out of the, the hole?" And he says, "I can't reach down, but writes down prayer and throws it into the hole for it." And then one of his I think it's like a construction worker walks past and he's like, oh, mate, can you help me get out of the hole? And he's like, well, I can give you some tools, but I'll, you know, I'll have to go and find something. And then one of his mates walks past. And his mate, he's like, dude, I'm down here. Can you give me a hand? And the mate jumps in the hole with him. And he's staring at him. He's like, why did you do that? 
He's like, now we're both stuck down here. And the friend goes, yeah, but I've been down here before. I know how to get out. And that story was just like, I told that at the end of every class, at the end of every semester at school, because I needed everyone to know if they're struggling mentally or with work or with something else, you're in a room full of people who are experiencing the exact same thing. So don't be afraid to jump down the hole. That's a really amazing story. When you finished the story, I actually felt it. That was that's a that's that's a really uh, touching story, and it's crazy to think that a lot of people think that they're the only ones going through a certain situation when there are so many people who have experienced the same things. <laughs> I got a funny story of like it's just um, so I was talking to a few guys at work. You know, I was talking to them about you know just a little quirk that my wife does at home. They both look at me and they say to say to me, oh, my wife does the same thing. <laughs> and then we kept talking and it was crazy how much our wives do the exact same things. One of my workmates turns to me and he goes, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think they're all related. <laughs> I mean, the but, similarities that should be, that exist are far greater. And it's, yeah, if we talk about them, then you're, you're more, than, more than likely to find out that you, you have something in common with people that you don't, you probably wouldn't think you do. I do think communication is definitely the key when it comes to mental health and sort of climbing out of that hole, uh, so to speak, or getting over that hump, whatever you want to call it. Because without talking about it, you're just going to continuously internalizing it and it'll just build up into or manifest into something that's way worse. You know, anxiety may move on to depression and then that depression may move on to extreme depression. I know a lot of people who have been depressed I actually know someone right now, this is a bit of a, a weird one, but I know someone right now who is so depressed that they don't really sleep too much. They'll sleep like four hours a night kind of thing. They drink a lot of coffee. They drink a lot of, a lot of alcohol. And there'll be stages probably once a month where they'll go comatose. So they'll fall asleep, but they'll fall asleep for days, days at a time. And it, it's really yeah. weird. I don't uh, fully understand it myself, but yeah, it's just crazy to me what, depression can do if it's left untreated and i do urge people to to talk about it and not to put too much weight into social media i think social media is the worst propaganda that's out there when people are on social media follow the right people don't follow these quote-unquote influencers where they're taking these weird photos on the beach and trying to show how much of a extravagant life they live one story that makes me laugh is um there was a, a girl who tried to take a photo of herself in front of this, it was this guy's mansion and she she's flashed up her clothes and he was video recording her <laughs> trying to take these photos. It wasn't even her house. <laughs> oh, there you go. One way to do it, I guess. Yeah, well, that's why um, I think social media is, it is pretty, it's, it's good because it keeps us in contact, but it's also bad because it does poison the mind sometimes, especially. It can suck you in. Look, everyone's um, susceptible to it, but just don't put too much weight into it, is, is, is what I believe. Yeah, it's been really good talking to you, uh, Dr. Keane. Um, I really do appreciate your time and I appreciate the work you're doing. Speaking of your work, uh, before I let you go, is there anything I can look forward to? Because I do like to read journal articles. Is there anything I can look forward to that you're working on at the moment? There is a huge amount of data that I haven't published from my research, my PhD. So there'll be a lot of EEG data for those who aren't aware of EEG, it's an electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic, need more coffee. There's, uh, it's basically reading the electroactivity of the, the cortices of the brain in young children with ADHD. And I've got a, about 2,000 recordings that I just see there and I've 
we're collaborating with another colleague from Swinburne, Dr. David White, and we've created this whole project where we're amalgamating a lot of this data and putting it together to sort of see what trends there are in young children between the ages of 6 and 14 with ADHD, as well as sort of what cognitive tracking there can be and what latencies they may show in terms of being able to respond to the buttons. So that has been on my board for this year, but everything has been pushed back in ADHD style, in that ADHD fashion. So that's going to be on my board for 2023. Um, and that's about four or five publications. That should be um, that should be quite exciting. I look forward to reading all of those. Uh, whenever they're done, I do hope you forward them to me. I especially uh, ADHD is one of those things. I don't. I love learning about it. I think it's a, a really interesting disorder. I do hope uh, once you've done those, you do forward them to me. I would love to read them, even if I have paid to read them. I don't mind. That's completely fine as long as uh, the money's going towards the researchers. It does bother me when the money goes towards. The, the publicists and not the researchers. That is something that bothers me. But, you know, I digress. Yeah, yeah. And I do, again, no, I, yeah. <laughs> I do, again, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dave. All the best. Thank you very much.